Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Thank you, Danny. My name's Danny, too. Not to be confused with... There's no, there's no particular order. There's, uh, there's no particular priority order there. Uh, nothing intended. He's always looking for a way to ease that in there. <laughs> oh, man. A couple other quick announcements is, uh, Dave, if you just raise your hand, um, Dave Slick is going to be uh, leading a team um, to build some homes um, June 14th through the 19th, and he needs about six to eight guys that would join him on that venture. So if you're interested in, uh, in supporting that, that project, um, please see Dave before he leaves today, and um, he has more details for you. So you won't miss him. He's pretty tall. Um, and then one last announcement is next week, we're going to be in the mill in our sanctuary, um, worshiping together. So it's been a long time coming. And uh, we just want to mention um, specifically that we're going to start at 8.30, the first service. So it's a half an hour early to kind of adjust for the summer because the summer is going to start getting warmer. So our service times are 8.30 and 10.30. And we just want to encourage you that, that come the first service not to bail on us next week and sleep in because we don't want a, a mega uh, crowd the second service. So we're just trying to encourage you to keep your lane, keep steady, just come a half an hour early, okay? <laughs> And um, don't come at nine because we'll be ending worship. So if, if the worship team is exiting as you're entering, you've arrived late. So um, 8.30 next week. So you've probably received a, a handout on the way in. Uh, if you would just grab that and flip it over, um, on the back is our vision and value statement. And for the next three weeks, we're going to unpackage our vision and value statement. And I just want to read it. Um, and if you've never seen it, if you're brand new, then this is a perfect moment for you to kind of capture just the, uh, the call that God's placed, the unique call God's placed on us as, as Radiant Church. It says this, we seek to put Jesus' brilliance on display by living a life obedient to the word of God, surrendered to the spirit of God, and devoted to the mission of God so that the lost are found Disciples are made, prodigals come home, and churches are planted. This is, this is our call as a church family, and we want to invite you into that. So this next three weeks, we want to take uh, just three chunks of it and kind of unpackage it. So this morning, I have the opportunity to just uh, capture the idea of what it means to be obedient to the Word of God. And I just want to say from the beginning here that um, we believe that it's, it's more important to be than to do. To be with Jesus, to capture his brilliance is more important than us to go out and do the work that he's called us to. Because the, the so that's actually allow us to do the things that come after them. It doesn't go before. So I, I just want to just 
say it and make it plain that, that we believe that capturing Jesus' brilliance, being with him and knowing him will allow us to do the things that he's called us to do. If, if we do that before being with him, we're going to be in trouble really quick. So this morning, if you have a, a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to Psalms 19. Psalms 19 is a, is a, is a fascinating chapter because it captures really the complete picture of what the Word of God is. In fact, in, um, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, it captures the Word of God as soundless. It's the soundless Word of God, and I'll, I'll explain what that means. In verses 7 through 11, it captures the idea of God's Word being perfect, reliable, trustworthy. So it's the perfect Word of God. And then verses 14 or 12 through 14, it pivots and it describes the word of God as being redeeming through his son, Jesus, the incarnate word. So it gives us an image of, of scripture being wordless or speechless, perfect scripture, and then redemptive through his son, Jesus. And that's kind of what I want to touch on each of those three pieces. And, uh, weave into it the idea that David found strength in the Lord and the promise of Jesus to be obedient to what Jesus was calling him to. So I'd like to read uh, Psalms 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Verse 7, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there's an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me, and then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer." We see here that David used some real descriptive words for the word of God in verses 1 through 6. He uses words like declared, proclaimed, no speech, communication of knowledge. All of these words that actually communicate verbal communication. Yet he's really clear in verse 3 that it says there's no speech, there's no words. Actually, there's no voice that can be heard. God's communicating to us, first of all, through nature, through the natural world. In uh, Phil Wickham's 
poetic song, You're Beautiful, he just captures this incredible image of what it means for nature to speak to us without words. He writes this, I see your face in every sunlight. The colors of the morning are inside your eyes. The world awakes to the light of your day. I look up to the sky and say, you're beautiful. I see the power of the moonlit night when planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We're amazed in the light of the stars. It's all proclaiming who you are. You're beautiful. It's like nature is speaking on God's behalf. It's speaking his creative words, his divine design, his imagination, and yet it's also speaking of an intentional design, his, intentional, his intentionality. And it points towards something bigger. One of the puzzling things about the soundless word of God is this idea that even those that don't walk with Jesus and put their faith in him have a, have a moment in their lives every once in a while when they capture a glimpse of God. For those of you that um, have been walking with God recently, you probably can look back on the short term and actually have, you could identify probably a moment in life where you saw a glimpse of God yet didn't quite know what it meant or what it was. Um, in, in the valley, we get that about one time a year when the sky clears after a rain and we see the Sierras, right, for the first time and we're reminded of just how close we are to the majesty of those mountains. I have a friend at, at work and a colleague and um, he's, he's a doesn't believe in Jesus. In fact, he believes in a lot of different things, but he continually posts on social media all the trips that he goes on in the outdoors and, and he's just blown away by the by the sights and the experiences that he sees. And every time I see a post, I pray that, God, you're drawing near to him. Every picture he posts, you're becoming more and more and more real. So God's, by design, he's created um, nature to speak of him. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, nature never taught that there exists a God of glory and of infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways. But nature gave the word glory and meaning to me. I still don't know where else I could have found it. Nature gives us an image, a picture of God's glory and draws us to himself. The soundless word of God. Although it's beautiful, we we find that we need more than that. And that goes to verse 7, where David talks about the perfect word of God. And as I was looking at this, I was just thinking, you know, nature, I'm captivated by it as well. But I also realized that the um, soundless word of God or or nature is often confusing as well. It doesn't always show us glory. Sometimes it can be confusing. So that's where where God brought his perfect word, his his scripture. And in verses 7 through 11 that we read earlier, David transitions to using words like instruction, testimony, precepts, commands, ordinances. All of these are synonyms for the scripture, the word of God. And in the context of of Psalms, it specifically was talking about the law of God, how to maintain holiness and how to live our lives. And, And David saw that, that not only nature spoke of God, but also the word of God is spoken through his word. It says in, um, in verse 8 that the word of God is right. And in Hebrew, yashar means like a right, um, 
standard to measure things by. It literally means like what we would call a ruler or something that we use for standard of measurement. They believe that the word of God was actually a way that we could line up our life and measure our life by. And if we were going off kilter, well, let's pull out the ruler, right? And let's pull, pull along our life and, and uh, align them up and, and compare and see where we're, we're going wrong and going off. So the, the word of God is right. It's, all to, it's also altogether righteous. In verse 8, it, or verse 9, he mentions that the word of God is altogether righteous. Altogether meaning that we can't hint and peck and pull out things that we agree with and say, that's right, but the other's not. It's altogether righteous. It's equally perfect. All scripture is right. And that's the battlefield of our culture, right? This idea that we have a right to determine what truth is and, and what and how we're, we're to respond to it. Do we agree with it? Does, it? does it agree with our heart and life? If not, then maybe we need to question the reliability of it. But maybe this part is true, but this part's not. And, and that's not what David's declaring here. He's saying it's altogether righteous. And then in verse 7, he says that it's trustworthy. Countless men and women throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, live lives into that reality of the trustworthiness of God. And uh, one of those such people in the Old Testament was Joshua. And in Joshua 1, Joshua came to this moment. He uh, was uh, right at the entry of the promised land. They had gone through the desert 40 years, and he was being led by Moses. And the Scripture says that that Moses died, and now the leadership responsibility was put on Joshua's shoulders. And Joshua was, was to lead his people into the promised land. And I was just thinking of the incredible uncertainty and insecurity that probably overwhelmed him. See, it's easy to follow until you hear the lead and people are following you. And all of a sudden, you're looking around going, what do I do next? And this is what God said to him. Above all, be strong and courageous to observe carefully Scripture my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. The book of instruction or the book of the law must not depart from your mouth, but you must meditate on it day and night. Be careful to observe everything that's written in it, for then you will prosper and you'll succeed. And I believe that God's encouragement to us today as we consider the value of being obedient to the word is in order to be obedient, we need to trust it. We need to trust that it's true. And you might be experiencing all kinds of firsts in your life, kind of like Joshua. Maybe as a parent, um, you have your first baby show up in your family and you're, uh, you know, you're over your head. You're not sure what to do. Or maybe you have your first teenager arrive in your family, which is an equally surprising thing. <laughs> and you're overwhelmed, like, oh, man, I, I'm, my parenting is not where it should be to deal with this. What do I do, God? Or maybe um, you're starting a brand new career, and that's a first for you, stepping out and, and leading people at work, and you're overwhelmed. Or maybe you're on the edge of retirement and you're like, God, what is it that you want me to do with this next leg of my life? Where do you want me to invest 
This is a first for me. And I just felt like God inviting us into trusting him yet again. Trusting that his word is true, his promises never fail. They're reliable. Whatever that first is that you're facing, God's there for you, and he's calling you to trust him. And I just want to pray over us this morning, for those of you that are are facing that first, kind of like Joshua, that you would actually not be swayed to the right or to the left, that you wouldn't be more attracted to a popular book or a podcast or the advice of a friend, but that you would be more attracted to the trustworthiness of God's word. That's not going to fail you. So Lord, I just, I just pray for us. I want to pause and, and just invite your Holy Spirit in this morning. It's, it's here, but into this specific place of our heart of, of just being challenged with life. Lord, whatever that first thing is, Lord, I just pray that our response would be to look to you, to trust you, Lord. God, that we wouldn't uh, go to the right or to the left, but we would just keep our eyes on you and, and declare your faithfulness, that we can trust you, that we can bank on you, Lord. And that your word is true. Lord, would you, would you help us live that reality? Even this afternoon as we go home, Lord, those, those insecurities and, and those uh, just shortcomings are going to flood in. And Lord, I just pray a response would be, God, I trust you. Lord, would you show up? Lord, we thank you for your word. And the, the last thing I just want to mention here in this section is the idea that in verse 7, it says that the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. And in contrast to nature, nature can't renew us, but the word of God can. The word of God is designed to actually Uh, initiates some change in our hearts and and change in our lives, and we begin to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Nature can't do that, but yet the Word of God can. And David went on to say in verse 10 that the book of the law, they, the Scriptures, are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't use those descriptive words when I think of the word, when I think of scripture. Oftentimes, I'm challenged by it, and I, I actually want to run away from it, not towards it. And he describes it as something that we would want to run to. In fact, we have an appetite for, right, honey, or, or wealth and gold. And that's how David described the word of God. Where, where can he get the courage and the strength to declare that over the word of God. That's such an interesting passage that he would actually say, this is like honey, like gold, versus, oh my gosh, if I measure my life up to it, I always fall short. And David didn't run away, he actually ran to it. So what do we need then to be obedient to the word of God? It, the word of God is, is evident in nature. It's, it's clear in scripture, but how do we align our obedience to it? What's the motivation? What's the posture that David had in his heart? And that um, kind of shows up a little bit. If we look on in verse 12, there's a glimpse of what was going on in his own heart that actually helps us understand and, and model our life after his posture. So in verse 12, it says this, who perceives his unintentional sins? 
Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Don't let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. As he closes this Psalms, he contrasts two things. He mentions that um, who can perceive the, the unintended sin? In other words, who can perceive what's deep down in our heart that seems to just pop up in the worst times and remind us of who we really are? Who can perceive it? It's like a rhetorical question, right? Who can perceive our deep down inner heart? Who can understand it? And the answer is really what? No one, right? No one can. We can't understand our heart. It's, it's finicky at best. And he's saying, who can perceive that? Yet then he goes on to say, moreover, keep your servant from willfully sinning. So those, those sins that are, we can see that are very clear in life, we can spot them out and we can say, yep, I'm not going there. So that's one category. And the other category, deep down in our heart, there's these sins that, man, we just, we can't seem to overcome. Sins like pride, greed, prejudice, defensiveness, resentment, unforgiveness, being unkind, comparing ourselves always to someone else. These things that just pop up out of our heart that we thought that we, we had mastered, right? But actually, they're, they're still there and being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And David said that, who can control these? But God, help me control the things that I can. Tim Keller, author and pastor, said this about this category of sin in our heart. He said, the sins that most dominate our lives and hurt us are the ones we justify. It's not because these kinds of sins are so small and we can't see them. It's because they're so characteristic. We're so used to living with them. And then he goes on in verse 14 and he says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Lord, my rock and my, my redeemer. And this word acceptable literally is used in the Old Testament over and over again as a perfect, blameless sacrifice. In fact, it's a, it's a perfect sacrifice that they would bring to atone for their sins. And David's saying, let the meditation of my mouth, or let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, be blameless, be perfect. Even though I'm controlling these things, but I can't control my heart. Do you see that? What, that's, what, what he's saying there? God, I trust that even the things that I can control and the things that I can't control are blameless to you. And then he goes on to say, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Redeemer means the closest relative, the closest family member. It also means a rescuer. See, David had this revelation that even the deep things in his heart that he couldn't understand, God could. And God's faithfulness can address those things in our life. And what he's speaking of when he's speaking of Redeemer is actually Jesus. He was the only one that brought the perfect sacrifice. Hey, worship team, would you come this morning? And I, I just want to make sure we're clear here that the ability to obey and trust Jesus 
is our acknowledgement of what he's done for us. That was the motivation of David's heart. God, even though there's things in my life I can't control and I seem to not have victory over, and when I line them up with the word of God, I just always fall short. Yet, I trust that I'm blameless in your sight, that I'm acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Galatians 3.13 says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is the one who's hung on the tree. There's this beautiful exchange that Jesus did. He actually took our imperfection and exchanged his perfection for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's actually the, the revelation that David had here. That it's actually Jesus, the Redeemer, that has the hope that we need. And that's really the posture today that we're encouraged by as we look at the Word of God, is that as we approach it with a desire to be obedient, it's not by works. It's not that we would line up our life and and try to do it in works, but actually we would trust that God's working through us, through His Son, Jesus. Man, what a promise. And as, uh, as we finish this morning, um, I, I want to receive communion together as a, as a church family. And there's tables positioned throughout, um, right outside the tents. And in just a moment, if you'd maybe send someone uh, from your family to grab that and bring it back, that would be great. Um, but what we want to do is we want to put Jesus on display this morning. As we, uh, as we prepare to receive communion, we want to be really clear that it's Jesus that's the perfect, not us. That it's Jesus that draws our hearts to him. So as you, uh, as this morning, as you take the, the bread, his body, and you take the juice, his blood, would we be reminded of the work on the cross that he did for us? It's only through his work that we can approach him. So would you stand with me this morning? And as we worship, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and receive communion as a family and, uh, and worship Jesus and thank him for what he's done. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. I